and welcome back to Pagan Heart in Maine. On today's episode, I answer a listener question, and we have an interview with Kaisier Sereth, author of A Pagan Book of Prayer. To start off today's show, here's Lisa Thiel with Litha. Always return 
power of the sun to honor you this night leap across the fire to keep our spirits bright power of the sun fire in the night leap behind that which blinds to restore our sight I received a letter a week ago from a listener, and he says, I feel like I'm a fluffy bunny sometimes. And yes, with time this compulsion is to be fluffy has diminished. But what about you? What was it like when you passed from the realm of fluffy into the world of calm, cool, and pagan? Signed, Michael Jack. Michael Jack also went on to clarify the term fluffy as new, wide-eyed, romantic, and easily impressed. And that's a really good question. I guess you have to look at it the same way as growing up. At what age do you go from being a kid to becoming an adolescent and then an adult? I don't think I can place a time that I went from being fluffy to being calm, cool, and pagan. But just like growing up, it came with a lot of reading and learning and living life. And there's a part of me that is still fluffy, and that's important. I see so many adults that live their lives and have forgotten the wonders of childhood, and that's sad. They give up their childhood to becoming an adult and they end up incomplete because they turn off a part of who they were, rather than add to it. It's the same with being fluffy. Most everyone starts out fluffy, and as we grow, we learn. We experience, and we grow up. But don't give up that first love, those first experiences that drew you to your path. Don't lose the newness and the wide-eyed romantic stuff. It's that childlike nature and spirit that brings the magic around us alive, and it is what helps connect us with deity. Play in the rain. Get wet, dance and laugh. I remember the springtime's glowing fields. I can see the trees dancing the light. I recall the rain stinging kisses. Remember the way it looked at night. Nothing's quite so clear as those memories. Time has drawn a mist over my eyes. The mother calls to me out of the darkness. I with some surprise You can't be Persephone forever May must give way into June No, you can't be Persephone forever You age with each waning of the moon The time of Demeter comes for me I couldn't stop it if I tried I must learn to walk the women's ways Childhood falling to the side 
slowly pass today for me. Flowers grow into full bloom. Another season, another journey. My springtime passes all too soon. You can't be Persephone forever. Men must give way into June. No, you can't be Persephone forever. You age with each winning of the moon. To live within the circle, my spirit grows in leaps and bounds. Wisdom gathers in my mind as life swirls all around. I will not fight the coming changes. To learn to grow is to be true. I will walk the path of mystery. The lady's words will guide me through. I can't be Persephone for. And that was Revel Moon with Persephone. And today we're recording from Incantations in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And I'm here with Tysir Sarath, author of A Book of Pagan Prayer. And welcome to A Pagan Heart in Maine. Good to be here. I guess when you're a pagan, or when you think pagan, you think rituals, spells, but a lot of times you don't really think prayer. Uh, most people would think of prayer as more of a Christian word or a Christian activity. I'd like to go ahead and ask, why Book of Pagan Prayer? Well, some of those things you already talked about are considered prayers, invocations, prayers of praise. Pagans do those all the time. I'm, I'm calling the quarters. Um, you guardians of the watchtower of the east, I summon Collins to you up to watch these rites and guard the circle. That's a prayer. Mm-hmm. So we are we already do prayers. The the thing is people think of prayers as petitionary prayers, asking for something. And that's I think what, what kind of bothers them. They think they do spells instead. Thing is, ancient pagans did prayers all the time. The Rig Veda is all prayers. The Homeric hymns, those are prayers. If you read the Greek plays, they pray at the drop of a corpse. They're just packed with prayers. It's something that all religions have done throughout history. 
And it's like I said earlier, neo-pagans are no exception to that. So what I wanted to do was to explain pagan way, traditional pagan way, in which prayers like that were constructed and were used, and then give some examples for people. Either something to write their own prayers from, or to use as written. And praying is an incredibly pagan thing to do. Now in your book you talk about the basics of prayer, and you talk about praying through words, through posture, through motion, dance, music, gestures. Right. Could you expound on that a little bit, on how would these tie in? Well, if prayer is communication, then we use, we use other forms of communication all the time. We use body language, we use gestures, we use motion. So to bring those into prayer makes perfect sense. It's just another form of communicating. Another good reason for that is neo-pagans, they don't downgrade the physical in favor of the spiritual. The material is, is holy too. So by praying with your body, you're honoring the physical as well as the mental, spiritual side that you'd be doing with your words. Uh, there's also the idea that prayer is communicating, but it's also being in, in accordance with the way things are. And motion is a very good way of doing that. You can sense the music, you can sense the way things are around you and you can move according to that. Sort of feeling the beat? Pretty much, yes. Uh, and so that, that can be seen as a way of prayer too. But I, I would still say though that, that the essence of prayer is communication. But we see that in, in dance in general. You, you see ballet and the story is told purely through the music and through the, the dance. So communication can be performed through music and dance. So I include those as well. Though prayer generally is thought of as verbal and I'm a verbal person so and obviously you can't write dance into a book so I, I'm mainly treating with the verbal side of it in there. And I know that you talk about litanies and mantras. Yes. And how how do you go into the differences of those as far as prayer itself? Well litany is a call and response. One person says something and other people respond to it. And generally the, the response is the same each time and generally the call is a, has a certain structure to it each time. Almost like, um, almost like the Catholic. They're used, in, they're used in Catholicism. They're used in lots of, lots of religions. Mm -hmm. uh, like, Goddess of the, of the Moon, we praise you. Goddess of the Earth, we praise, we praise you. you. Goddess mm -hmm. of Growth, we, we praise, praise you. you. So that the call is, has a similar structure and the, the response is always the same. And the reason why you do that is it works really well in groups. It mm -hmm. works well in groups that have never been together before. So you can have someone do an invocation. So you get the, the beauty, the structure, the whole point that you want to get across. But it brings a group in as well. Right. It still brings them in and they, they can be part of it. And they can learn this one phrase before the ritual. They can learn it during the litany itself. You got a few people, got a couple of shills in the audience there, and they start doing it and everybody else picks up on it. So mm -hmm. everybody's praying together in that case. Uh, mantras are, they tend to be more individual. You can do a mantra in a group, but the, the essence of a mantra is repetition. Just there, right. just you think of that as more of a meditative yes. type? Well, one, one example I, I use myself when I was trying to understand and somehow make contact with the goddess breed. Uh, the fire breed is a flame on our hearth, the fire breed is a flame in my heart. That over mm -hmm. and over again um, made me really close to breed, to feel the, the, the connection between hearth and heart, the fire, and also by honoring her, 
not only making myself aware of her, but making her aware of me. Mantras are really good for individuals. They're also good for groups, kind of like with a litany where you're bringing the people in, but it's a back and forth thing, right. uh, which has its own power. The fact that you're communicating within the group uh, has its power. But uh, with a mantra, you're definitely all doing the same thing the whole all the time, and that brings the group together as well. Do you, do you find that people maybe don't have a, a, a right understanding about prayer? I, 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 I guess I think of it this way, is when most people think of prayer, they're asking for something. That's certainly a kind of prayer. Right. You deal with other aspects of it as well, as far as, as a means of thanking and worship as well. Yes, right? uh, calling to a deity, praising them, thanking them, those are all forms of prayer, all That's categories right. you know, mm-hmm. of, of prayer. Petitionary prayer where you're asking for something is also a, a, a category of prayer, but it isn't the only one. It's a good one, it's an important one, just not the only one. Now, your book is absolutely wonderful. Thank you. You do, you do have many examples of different types of prayers. Yes, uh, uh, the uh, publisher counted them for me, and there's about 500 prayers in there. Thank God the publisher counted them for me, because I wouldn't have had the heart to do it, um, or the time. But there are quite a few in there, yes. And you have prayers in here for almost every situation. Prayers for family, for household, prayers for the times of day, prayers for the times of month, times of year, times of life. Are these all prayers that you came up with yes. yourself? Yes, I wrote every one of them. How long did it take you to do that? Well, what happened was years ago, 20 years ago, uh, I wrote another book called The Pagan Family. And at the same time, I had this, this great plan that I'd written, I'd write a book on paganism for families, I'd write a book on paganism for small groups, and write a book on paganism for individuals. And the, I did, I got the, the family one published, I got the other one written, wasn't published, it's going to be published soon. And I got the prayer book, maybe a third done. And through the years, as I, as the spirit hit, hit me, I would, write a few more prayers and throw them in the file. A couple of years ago, I got the rights back to the Pagan family, which had gone out of print, made a, a second edition of it, and sent it into Weiser. They wrote to me and said, we're not interested in publishing that book, but are you interested in writing a book for us on prayer? Which was kind of nice, because I already had a book, a third written. So I called them up and said, yeah, I could probably do that. And so they said, all right, you know, when can we have a few chapters. I said, ah, about 90 days. So I wrote a bunch more and sent it to them in 90 days, and they said, okay, when can you have the final books? I said, ah, 90 days. So I finished it up and sent it to them. So in a way, it took 20 years to write, but two-thirds of it I wrote in about six months. So that when I was writing the, finishing it up, I would actually sit down and say, okay, what occasions do I need prayers for? And I would sit and write a dozen prayers and I would think okay what deities have I not dealt with because I wanted to include as many different deities as possible so I think of what ones I had and say okay how about one for this for the and for this occasion I would write one and that's something that in the book you 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 really kind of show not just the examples of prayer and prayers that you can actually use but really how to do that yes yeah about the first third of the book is prayer theory you might say uh, and it has the how-to, why, it's the why-to part, and has what is it all about, but it also has how our prayer is traditionally constructed, what are techniques you can use in, in writing a prayer. 
So I, I wanted people to both have a something they could carry with them and, and just use straight out, straight out, straight out. Yeah, and I also wanted them to be able to then write their own from it. So you have a new book coming out. Yes, uh, another. I have two new books coming out fairly soon, and should be another one out in about a year. Um, one of the ones that's coming out is another book on prayer. This one actually is just just all prayers because I've pretty much said everything that needs to be said about the how tos and the whys. This one is just a prayer book. It's about the same length as the first one, but it's all prayers. It's called uh, Speaking of the Sacred. I've organized it a little bit differently. The suggestion of the publisher was a great suggestion. The first half of the book is organized like a ritual. The, the first chapter is calling people to the ritual. And the second chapter is creating sacred space. The third chapter is calling the gods and so on. And the last chapter, the first section, the last two chapters, deconstructing sacred space and then dismissal of the people. You know, we've done wonderful stuff. Let's go on our way. And then the second half is prayers for a particular intentions. Like there's a chapter, healing, comfort, safety. Mm-hmm. And there's a chapter of thoughts and spot and inspiration. Uh, so those are the second section is for specific intents, whereas the first section is set up to do a whole ritual through. I've tried hard to do as many deities as possible again, mm-hmm. and I've tried to modify styles again to give them. I not only because different people like different styles, so it'll be more useful for it to do them. Also because it will show people different styles in which you could write them. My style is a very particular style, a particularly easy for me style. I could. You know, sit and whip off a prayer off the top of my head, but it'd be in my style, my very certain, easy way of talking. It's the way I am. But since different people approach prayer in different ways, I've had to force myself to write different styles, and that's what I'm hoping comes through in the second book. Nice. And you have a third book also? Uh, yeah. it's uh, That book I wrote 20 years ago also. The current title is Reinventing Wicca. I myself called it Back to the Beginnings, which describes very nicely what the book was about. Uh, Ronald Hutton once commented to me that we shouldn't think too badly of Gerald Gardner, uh, that historically speaking, his stuff, the stuff that he came up with, doesn't have much to do with ancient paganism, even though he said it did. But he is the best scholarship of his time. At the time, people did think that witchcraft was a survival of ancient paganism. And they did think that folklore was a direct survival of paganism. He wasn't making these things up. He wasn't being sloppy. He was doing the best he could. So that made me think, well, what if Gerald Gardner were today, alive today and were to invent Wicca today? With the resources that we have today. Right, using the best scholarship available at this time. What would it look like? So that's the idea of back to the beginnings, the back to the beginning of Wicca, but also back to the ancient times bringing that stuff in. So what I did was I kept the basics of Wicca, the god and the goddess, the eightfold year, traditionalist Wicca, so there's a, there's a, a small groups, there's initiatory structure, those, the very basics like that, threw everything else out. Okay. And then started bringing things in. Witchcraft was the first to go, uh, because, like I said, at the time of Gardner, people believed that witchcraft was a survival of ancient paganism. We know now it isn't throw witchcraft out. Once witchcraft goes, ceremonial magic goes with it. Because mm-hmm. ceremonial magic was brought in on the tales of witchcraft. Right, right. That gets thrown out as well. Well, what takes it pl- its place? What comes in? Why? Where are still the mysteries involved? 
things snuck back in, surprisingly. I threw out the whole magic circle thing, and then in researching ancient paganism, learned that there, there were concepts of sacred space that were actually very similar to circle casting. Hmm. For instance, the, uh, tradi a traditional way of creating sacred space did involve cutting with a metal weapon or metal tool of some kind. So that was able to be brought back in. Even though it came into Wicca through ceremonial magic, it can also come in through ancient paganism. So some things surprised me and came back in. Other ones didn't. The, the central mystery surrounded the whole idea of the, uh, the, the god-goddess, the sexuality. That, that was still there because it was so much part of Wicca. Right. I couldn't get rid of that. But also the use of a sacred drink came in. And that made a nice little connection with the god and goddess mystery. And so that was able to be brought in and joined together with it. Um, so there is that aspect of it. The, the whole sacred drink thing becomes a, a structure around which a lot of it rotates, but then ties that into also the god and goddess. I'm, I'm very proud of the book. I think it's my best ritual work. Even though I wrote it 20 years ago, I think it's the, my, the best ritual stuff I've written. Do you find that by taking the witchcraft aspect out of Wicca, that it becomes more spiritual? I would think so. More religious, let's say. More People religious. like to make religion has gotten a bad name. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Well, no, you're not. You're religious. Well, maybe you are spiritual. Religion is the way in which you express your spirituality. The way you worship. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you don't just walk around being spiritual. You are spiritual in a particular way. You, right. You and practice that's, that's, certain rituals. You pra you deal with certain deities. That's religion. That's religion. Right. right. Um, so the emphasis does become more on religion and really yeah, more on spirituality, less on manipulation, more on, well, dare I say, prayer. So it looks like after 20 years, the, the project of those three books will finally be completed. And I actually will get my small book out as well, small group book out as well as my individual book out. How does it, does this tie it all into, say, the ADF, which you belong to? You're right, ADF, Anurakt Fane. Anurakt Fane is the country's largest druidic organization. We've got 1,300 members, uh, and it's been around for 25 years. 1,300 members in 25 years is pretty impressive for any pagan organization. We've managed to hold ourselves together for that long. We actually have members in Wales and States. We have them in Canada, England, Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands. Uh, so it's a fairly widespread organization. The idea always was to use the best modern scholarship uh, and to have a, a pan-Indo-European form of religion. which explain a little bit on that one. Druidism, of course, was Celtic. Right. Um, but there are enough similarities between the Celtic religion and certain related religions, the Norse, the Romans, the Greeks, the Vedics, that you can combine them in some way and they, they overlap. Like, let's say among the Celts we have A, C, D, F, and we go to Rome and we have B, C, D. Right. And we go to I Greece and with C, D, E, F, G. You can overlap those ones and you can fill in the holes that you that you don't have from the other, other religions. There's a, there's a commonality. There's a commonality, yep. Yeah. And the, we don't, if we don't know something from the Celts, like it would be nice to know how they created sacred space. But we do archaeologically have what their sacred space looked like, but we don't have the ritual. Well, we go to Rome and Greece and India, and we do have rituals. And we compare those and find the similarities, and now we can plug our, our uh, 
synthetic ritual from those into the hole in the Celtic religion. Uh, so that, that was the idea, to have a, a pan-Indo-European. I mean, Indo-Europeans are a group of related languages and therefore language-related cultures. And mm-hmm. they include those, you know, those ones that I talked about as well as like the Slavs and the Balts and a few other other people. Um, so there, within Arnrecht Fane, there are people who worship the Celts. There are people in the Celtic tradition. People work in the Norse, Roman, Greek, some Vedic, some Iranian ones just starting up, which is very exciting to me. We have Balts. We have Slavs. Um, mm-hmm. I work both Celtic and Proto-Indo-European. And Proto-Indo-Europeans are the ancestors of the Indo-Europeans. If the different Indo-European cultures are cousins, so the Proto-Indo-Europeans, the grandfather. Okay. Uh, so that that's the tradition I work with a lot. Uh, it's it's a good organization. I like the fact that it's it's scholarly, but it's not just scholarly. There's a I like to think of, of it as having two wings: the reconstructionist wing and mm-hmm. the inspirationalist wing. See, I was going to ask about that because it's not really a true reconstructionist in the traditional sense because. You're really reconstructing from several different puzzle pieces. Right, right. And we're also not trying to create exactly what was in ancient times. It's almost a new right, a new way of worship. Right, but it's based on ancient times. Mm-hmm. So you get the reconstructionist people that, that want to do things the way they were in the old days. And you get the inspirationalist people who want to do just you know whatever the spirit moves them. There's a tension between those two in ADF. Both wings exist, and of course, most people are somewhere be- along the line between them. Do you find they um, balance each other? They have a tension with each other. Uh, that yes, balance is, is one way of saying that the the uh, the inspirationalists keep the reconstructionists from becoming boring and irrelevant, and the reconstructionists keep the inspirationalists from floating off into the ether. <laughs> so, so together, they're able to to develop a combined tradition that that has vitality, but also some sort of Authenticity, I guess you, you could call it that. Mm-hmm. So it's developed its own ritual structure through the years based on these on that tension. It's you know it's a very good religion, um, very good tradition. I'm very proud to be a member of it. I've I've been a member from the beginning. My membership number is four. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I've been there a long time. I haven't wasn't involved doing much with it for a number of years. In recent years, I've gotten a lot more involved with it. But uh, it's a group that seems like it's in there for the long haul. Uh, if anybody's interested, ADF.org. The thing I, one of the things I really like about ADF, it has respect for scholarship. It's a druidic organization, uh, so it respects scholarship. And I'm essentially a scholar kind of person, so it's a group that I can get involved in. Um, I then have to be really careful to allow the inspirational swing to influence me. One good thing about that, uh, the inspirationalist wing, is not just the inspirationalists, but even us reconstructionists, and will include things sometimes that we made up ourselves, but we admit it. You know, right. it's not. It's not it's like that's something you claim to be an ancient tradition passed down. Right, right. We believe in footnotes. You know, mm-hmm. we, we believe in references. We believe in being honest. So a, lo- a lot of the stuff we do that, admittedly, isn't ancient. We tell people. An important part in our ritual is a gatekeeper. We call a particular deity to help open the gates to the other world. There's some precedent for that among Indo-Europeans, but it originally came from voodoo. Someone who would have been involved in voodoo really liked the idea and incorporated it into ADF, and it fits. It fits mm-hmm. It fits in. We wouldn't bring anything else, something in from voodoo that didn't fit. Right. It has to fit into Indo-European. But the fact that we are willing to admit that this this Indo-European ritual thing has an element taken from voodoo 
I think says a lot about us, and I'm very proud of that. And over the 25 years, you've built upon this uh, and brought in different things. Do you find that it changes? Uh, is it at a place where uh, does it keep growing? Yes, it does. Uh, in, in recent years, it's sort of growing up. There were a lot of ideas we had that never really went anywhere. Um, there was always a plan for a good study program so that if you want to be a good liturgist, you go through a liturgist study program. If you want to be a good bard, you go through a bardic study program. And that was always some a sort of someday stuff. Someday is here, and we're starting to, to get those things together. And that's one of the good things about the organization, one of the reasons it's worth joining, is that there is the study program. It gives reading lists and certain questions, and you answer them and write them down and send them in, and they say, have you thought about this and kick it back at you and then you have to revise it and send it back in and so on so so they really um, cause you to think about this oh yeah yes and that's that's the whole intent of it to, to make mm -hmm. you think things the the first level of the study programs the dedicants program there's one section in there where it's uh write what you think about the kindreds which is what we call the deities the ancestors and the nature spirits what is your view of the kindreds and the goal is not, do you agree with us in the kindreds, but have you really thought it through? So if you say the deities are like this, they might say, yeah, but how does that influence this other thing? What, what are the implications of that? So the idea is to make sure you've really thought it through. Make you, make you think well, make you research well. You're not just surf, going over the surface of right. it from something you may have read somewhere. Right. But there's also part of the Dedekinds program that is about setting up a family shrine, or a household shrine. What elements do you want in your in your shrine? What do you do for them? Uh, there's a section on uh, the virtues, and one of the virtues is piety. So as part of that, you're going to have to describe your personal religious practice. So there is the, a large academic bent to it. After all, we're Druids. But there also is a very large... Uh, spiritual aspect of it. What do you actually do? Okay, fine. So you believe these things. Now what? What do you do? So it's a very nicely balanced study program. How do, and, you, how do you incorporate that into your life? Right. And uh, so that's one of the things we're finally getting our act together on. That's the biggest thing right now. Uh, about a year or so ago, we finally got got together and worked out our, our core order of ritual, which is a a certain number of, L of things that you need to have in your ritual in order to be an ADF ritual. You've got to have the gatekeeper, you've got to have what's called the waters of life. Uh, there are certain things you have to have. You can do it, you can put these in any order. You can add things to it. Exactly what it means by calling the gatekeeper, who's gatekeeper, who, what your deity is your gatekeeper, exactly how do you open the gates that's open to local freedom. So again, it's a nice little tension between organization and freedom. And I really like that, that aspect of it. We have things that hold us together, but we also have things that allow us creativity. So as long as the core structure is there, you really do have the freedom to do what feels right for your particular ritual, your particular yes. grove. Yes, so each grove is developing its own little traditions, mm -hmm. but it's a tradition within a larger tradition. We're required, each grove is required to celebrate the, the eight neo-pagan holidays and to have them as open rituals. One, we have a very strong commitment to community and to community rituals. You're, you're actually not allowed 
to have rituals that are only limited to the grove. No, no, um, no closed circles at all. No, you can you can have them within a grove, but they the members of it can't be more than half of the members of the grove. Like you might have a, a women's mysteries group uh, mm-hmm. that does a small group part of it, but even I don't know of any groups groves that do actually. Uh, it just isn't isn't the way we do things. But all our rituals, other than that, our big eight ones, are all open to the public. It's not just a requirement, it's part of our philosophy that we provide this to the community. Our biggest thing right now is the the study program. Um, and the study program is geared towards actually producing things. So there's a liturgist guild, which is a liturgist training program. And in order to advance within this guild, you have to write rituals and you have to put them on. Uh, in the Bardic Guild, you have to write songs or tell stories. There's a, a, a Brewer's Guild, actually, and you have to actually make the beer or make the mead, and it isn't just you make it for your own consumption, you bring it to rituals, and they're, maybe they're used in the ritual, maybe they're used at, the par- at a party afterwards. We always have parties after rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to share among the people. So the the idea is to actually produce stuff, and for, I for the community. For the community, yes. For years, we didn't even have a book of songs. A number of people were producing some, but they weren't brought together. And the Bardic Guild didn't have its act together, like most of the guilds, uh, and they weren't producing songs. But now they're producing things, and now a book is getting made, and there will be future editions of this book. So I think the growth now is going to be based on what we have already. There won't be major changes. We were sort of um, concretizing it right now. We've got a structure. We've got the study program. We're going to see where that leads us. Maybe as people pass through the study program, we'll say, wait a minute, this, we need to teach people this, or this wasn't necessary, and there'll be modifications to that. One of the, one of the changes might be that we continue to grow, so how do you operate a larger organization? I mean, 1,300 people's a lot. Uh, well, what is it like when we have 5,000 people? How do you how do you keep an organization going that where how do you keep your identification with the organization structure? Uh, that that'll be a challenge, and you know we're, we're working on that. That's one of the ways in which the Grove structure may help. That if the Grove, if you're if you're part of the Grove. You feel like you're part of the grove. You have input in part of the grove, and then the grove is part of a larger group, uh, and and so on. Uh, so that's one part of way of it. Another way is through our various study programs. That if you if you're doing the liturgist study program, you feel like you're part of a liturgist group. That's going to be a, a problem. Um, we're addressing it. And I think we're doing it right. So there will be growth in that area. And the, the website to that again is adf.org. ADF.org. Right. Well, I've got another book coming out in a year. Oh, really? Uh, probably. Uh, it's actually put out by ADF. ADF is starting a, a publishing arm, mm-hmm. and they've got a their second book is coming out very shortly. Uh, the first one is by John Michael Greer and called "A World Full of Gods," which is a marvelous defense of polytheism. It's uh, polytheism apologetics. It's why does polytheism make more sense than monotheism? Uh, it's very carefully argued. He's a, a very brilliant man, and he's done a wonderful job with that. Uh, my book will, I think, be the third that comes out, and it's on Proto-Indo-European religion. You know, I've already talked about Proto-Indo-Europeans as being the, um, 
the ancestors of the Celts, the, the Greeks, the Norse, the Romans, and a few other groups. And that's a, a great passion of mine. Uh, so I've written a book on it, which includes rituals and general information as well. Well, when I, I give presentations on it at gatherings, and one of the ways I like to start out is by, by going, Oinos dwell trei quetwar penque septum octal nem decum. And I'm guessing you know what I just did. You just, just uh, counted one to ten. Exactly. Well, this is a language that was spoken about 3500 BC, and enough of it has survived in various forms in various languages that you can actually recognize We can that. recognize that, right? Yeah. Um, Pater, mater, prater, swesor, sonos, dukter. You can recognize those as well as members right. of the family. Mother, brother, um, sister. Right. On the other hand, some of, you know, gyu means to, to pour out or to pray, which tells you something there too, the idea of pouring a libation, the idea of prayer, mm-hmm. praying. It's uh, roughly the same kind of idea. So some of them you don't recognize, uh, but some you really do. So it's not just the language that is, is still part of us, but parts of the culture are still part of us. And so it speaks to a lot of people. It sounds it sounds familiar. And and that's one of the things that fascinates me, that it sounds... It that, feels that, that we feel we should... I know this. Yes. Right. Yes. Some, in some way, this is where I came from, even though I... I've never seen it before. There's there's something going on here. Do you feel it's something that may be inside of us that's carried down throughout, or just I Joe, think or, it was... or just the just the proliferation from a common source? It's cultural. Cultural. It's, it's not like genetic or anything. In fact, there's some good genetic information coming out that shows that um, the spread of the Indo-European languages weren't necessarily linked with like migrations and invasions and stuff that that most of the people from England are descended from people who've been there forever mm. uh, long before the Indo-Europeans arrived so it it's definitely not a genetic thing it's purely cultural so if if, if language didn't spread through say the invasions and what I would say cross-pollination of cultures mm-hmm. how does that develop? Well, there are a couple of ways. Actually, there's something called elite dominance, which means if you see a culture as being somehow special and more important, having higher status, you'll tend to adopt the language they speak as well. That's kind of what happened actually in France and Spain. Yeah, the Romans conquered France and Spain, but not many actually moved there. Hmm. The, mm-hmm. pe- the local people started adopting Latin because it was the prestige language. If you wanted to be upper class, you spoke Latin. If you wanted to trade with people, you spoke Latin. And so slowly they started adopting Latin and their own languages fell by the wayside. So most of the people in France have ancestors that go way, way, way back before the Romans, even though they speak a language that comes from Latin. So would that be comparable to say why um, in Europe and like Canada, they use primarily the metric system as opposed to. That was a little more organized. It was a little more, uh, more an international organization saying, "Hey, let's do it this way," and people saying, "Yeah, that makes sense." Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little more like a kind of reverse migration, where um, in Florida, in Miami, with the, the large Cuban population mm-hmm. there. You can live your entire life in Miami and never speak English. Right. Have a perfectly good life, have a nice job, 
and never speak English. It's, it's really become almost an extension of Cuba at some point. Right. However, first-generation Cubans in, in Miami tend to only speak Spanish. Second-generation Cubans tend to speak both Spanish and English. Third-generation Cubans tend to speak only English. So it does, after a period of time, go back to... English is the prestige English. language. English is the one you want to learn. If you're going to get a good job, if you're going to go to college, it's the prestige language. So they're, even though they came here, it's not like they like we came there, but they came here and there's a prestige language here, which then they adopt. Uh, and you even see that in a place where they don't have to adopt it. And then we tie this right back into religion. It works the same way. Yes, it does. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of, of the co uh, conversion of paganism in, in Europe was a result of that. Um, there's a, a sort of mythology in modern paganism that the Christians came in and killed off all the, the pagans and were all these persecutions. It was more common that the upper classes became Christian. So they people be, wanted to follow that, so they adopted right. Christianity yeah. on their own. And, yeah, and the upper classes adopted Christianity because they saw this higher culture. There was this you know, very developed, written, um, organized culture, and they wanted to be part of that. So they adopted Christianity, not really for religious reasons, but for cultural reasons. And then the, the lower classes adopted it to be like the, uh, the upper classes. Mm -hmm. um, Fascinating example is, is Iceland, where they actually got together and voted. Should, voted. We, should we become Christian or should we stay pagan? And they voted to become Christian, because that made them part of the rest of Europe, mm -hmm. which had become fairly Christianized. And so that wasn't really necessarily from a religious point of view, it was to be part of the culture. So mm -hmm. elite dominance takes place in, in religion as well. Yes, it definitely does. Where do you see the state of paganism today, where it's growing? so much as an alternative to, say, the big three faiths. And, and, and actually, I should even put in there, Islam is one of the fastest growing. Where do you see that? As far as Islam is concerned, I honestly don't know. I've studied Islam fairly well, and it, it completely leaves me cold. Um, I had a professor in college who is a, one of the leading Islamic scholars in the country. I once told him that. And he said, well, that's because the more monotheistic a religion is, the less you're interested in it. Uh, <laughs> and I guess he's right. Uh, it leaves me completely cold, so I'm really, I don't have a feel for what the appeal is, so I couldn't really tell you why it's, why it's growing. You, th um, you think it might be, uh, especially those jumping from Christian, a, a Christian one-God concept to an Islam God concept might be an easier transition than to a polytheistic. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I just don't see why. Right. Because um, I'm, I'm too much of a polytheist at heart. Uh, you know, you spend enough time in polytheism, after a while monotheism stops making it, sense. It, it does, it you does. Know, on a gut level. I can, I can see philosophically how there's some sense to it. Mm -hmm. On a gut level, it just isn't me. You know, it's like certain kinds of music. I would love to love jazz. I can mm -hmm. see its beauty, I can see the intricacies of it, I can see how how much depth there is to it, but it just doesn't speak to me. Right. Um, so, you know, it can be it can be kind of like that. As far as paganism is concerned, it's become fashionable. And it's mm -hmm. particularly, popu particularly popular among high school kids. Right. I doubt they're going to last. I, I used to jokingly say a lot of 
younger pagans are either guys who played Dungeons and Dragons too long or girls who are angry at their parents. Yeah, so. that's exactly what a lot of it is. It's it's fashion. Mm -hmm. It's like the your hairstyle. Uh, for many of them, not for all of them. I don't want to consult anyone out there, but for a lot of them, that's what it is. And once they graduate from high school, they'll drop it. Right. Once they make friends with their parents again, they'll drop it. And then there are more and more who are coming out of uh, a Christian background just because they're realizing that, uh, even in my case, where this isn't my path. Do, do you see? Do you see where uh, people are doing that at all? People come to paganism for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. Some feel they've already. A lot of people feel they've always been pagan and just have finally found out where they belong. What the name is for what they, they follow. Yeah, I certainly have no argument with that. I'm not sure it happened to me that way. I, you know, I can understand that a lot, but a lot of people are in it for a variety of reasons. And there's another thing about early Christianity. People, a lot of people converted to Christianity for social reasons. And I don't mean, you know, to hang out because they had good parties. I mean because they were nice people. Right. They had hospitals. They had charity organizations. If you receive charity from someone, you feel gratitude, you feel warm, fuzzy feelings for them, there's a good chance you'll end up following their, their path. You want to be like them. Exactly. Another, that's one of the major reasons why people convert. And the other major reason is you admire somebody who is that religion. Uh, that's why, why um, martyrdom actually helped Christianity. Because mm -hmm. people admired these people who were willing to, to die, for, die their for their faith. So they wanted to be that noble too. So they, they started up, up with that. So there are a lot of reasons why people will, will convert. Um, I, a lot of people become pagans, at least temporarily, because pagans grow, pr throw pretty good parties. <laughs> and that's not that, uh -huh. that, that's not that much of an insult. Because oh, I don't think an insult at all. Because hospitality is one of the greatest virtues in paganism. I think it's a lot of its fellowship and and togetherness. Yeah. So if you feel comfortable, if you feel welcomed, if you feel inspired to be hospitable to someone else, then you're going to want to be whatever it is that causes people to be like that. So some people come into paganism because they feel good parties, and some people hang around because they discover other things. Some people eventually leave because they find other parties somewhere else, and that's okay. You know, a lot of people who are pagans used to be someone else, and a lot of people who are someone else used to be pagans. Mm -hmm. We're not one true faith people, so right. if you don't belong here, Godspeed. Mm -hmm. uh, go find somewhere else. I hope you're happy. Why is the religion growing? There's a certain amount of, it's not like a geometric pro uh, progression. I mean, you go from one to two to four to eight to 16 to 32. Right. You know, with, with each addition, every, everyone who joins has 12 friends mm -hmm. of whom a certain percentage become, will become pagan. And right. each of those have 12 friends and so on. So there's a, a certain critical point at which things start to grow. And I think you know, paganism, particularly Wicca, has reached that point. I've noticed, interestingly enough, on uh, websites and message boards where you've got, got uh, atheists and they're critiquing religion, they will always say, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Wicca. Like, it's become one of the ones they, they one give. Of the big, yeah. yeah it's, now, it's now the big four instead of the big three. Yeah, I mean, I might throw in Buddhism and Hinduism there, but Wicca has almost has become accepted to be criticized right. by, by these people. So there is a certain 
it's becoming more legitimate in the eyes of a lot of more people. Right, even people who critique it, uh, which is kind of interesting. But I suspect a lot of that just is more exposure rather than more real acceptance. Right. Paganism is growing. I have no doubt about that. Neo-paganism is growing. Right. No doubt about that. Whether it'll stay uh, or not, I don't know. I think one of the things that I, I have found is that it seems to have to reinvent itself because it doesn't have a lot of the structure that, say, the big three have. Christianity, sure. Islam, Judaism. Well, if you look at Wicca today, Wicca was invented right. late 30s to early 50s as a initiatory religion. Mm -hmm. Small groups, there was a strong structure to it. This is the Book of Shadows. These are the rituals. This is what we do. You're not a Wiccan unless you're initiated. And you're first degree Wiccan when you're first initiated, and you go through other levels. Now it's become almost a free for all. Right, uh, right. And that, that's both a um, result and a cause. That mm -hmm. um, people, a lot of people join Wicca because they feel it's great freedom to believe and do whatever they want. But that, that, that causes, has caused Wicca to change so much. Retronym is a great linguistic term, a retronym, which is that you've got a certain term and then because of changes you have to make up new things you have to make up a term a new term for that thing like there used to be a guitar right well then electric guitars were invented mm -hmm. so what used to be called a guitar now has to be called an acoustic guitar I see I see so Wicca was you, you had to redefine it in a way to where you can't just say right guitar. so Wicca was Wicca mm -hmm. and then Wicca became so Mushy is a bad word for it, ill-defined, mm -hmm. that... Watered well, down, it's really yeah. nice. Well, what used to be called Wicca now has to be called British traditional Wicca, mm -hmm. or sometimes just traditionalist Wicca. You had to actually make a whole new name for it, because the name has been co-opted. I like to make a distinction between Wicca and Neo-Wicca, or between traditional Wicca and Neo-Wicca, but the, the religion has changed so much, and will continue to change in has become so eclectic. And that's a result of um, to a large part of people coming in, in to the religion from my school. And that's then fed. You get the Silver Rave, Ravenwolf books. I blame it all on Scott Cunningham, uh, who started the idea of, of uh, solitary, solitary practitioner, yeah. which was just a... Uh, there's a saying in the, uh, the Gardnerian uh, Book of Shadows, you cannot be a witch alone. Uh, the very idea was absurd. And, 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 many, and many of the uh, uh, witches and Wiccans today, that's where they start. They usually start with Cunningham. Yes, exactly. So. He's been very, very influential. Um, his stuff, stuff is quite nice. I have very ambivalent feelings towards it because of that. Do you, do you think that maybe paganism today may be at the place where Christianity was in the first century before um, the Pauline... Christians really centered it down because e I mean each each town sort of had their own version of Christianity in a way could be um, I don't see any signs of it being narrowed down um, it's right. still expanding it's still expanding right and one possibility is that it expands so much and the varieties expand so much that it loses all identity and just kind of disappears that it reaches a point where there's no point in being a Wiccan because there's no identity there. Uh, that's a possibility. Another possibility is that it starts to narrow down. 
Another possibility is it starts to break up into various things. Like you get the, the reconstructionists forming their own groups. So um, they sort of spin off from each other. Yeah, that's another possibility. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listening audience today? I would like to put in a plug for my website. Absolutely. I'm hoping you're going to have a link to it as well. Yep, absolutely. It's cleverly named KaiserSareth.com. Um, you know, you'll see it, um, how it's spelled on my on this podcast. There are a lot of things on there. There are a number of pages on the the on Proto-European religion. There is a page of prayers, which are which is some of them are coming from the second book. Other ones I've ones I've written ones I've written since then. There are a couple um, essays on the history of Wicca. There's one on the history of the charge that I'm quite proud of. It was actually referenced in Ronald Hutton's book, Triumph of the Moon, oh. History of Witchcraft. I'm very proud of that. There's one on a fantasy world that I created for a novel that I abandoned because I discovered I couldn't really write fiction. Uh, that includes, of course, a made-up language because language is an interest of mine. There's a, uh, an article I wrote on Kirnonis that I'm extremely proud of. It's uh, looking at what the actual ancient Gauls believed about Kirnonis. And here's a, a bit of a brag here. It's an expansion of a paper that I gave at the Harvard Celtic Colloquium that will eventually get published in the Proceedings of the Harvard Celtic Colloquium. Nice. That's my biggest uh, claim to academic fame. Uh, there's a page of light bulb jokes. <laughs> I consider light bulb jokes highly underrated. Oh, um, can, can you share one with the audience here? Well, I guess the great classic is the one in Surrealists. And the answer is two. One to hold the giraffe and the other to fill the bathtub with brightly colored bicycles. <laughs> that's that's one. There's one on there that I can't remember the details of that I'm proud of, which is about Zen monks, Zen masters. And it's it's structured just like a, a Zen koan with, with, with commentaries by various other masters. <laughs> I'm very proud of that one because I wrote most of that one myself. But a, a light bulb joke is like a sonnet or a haiku. Hmm. You've got a very specific structure within yeah. which you must be creative. And it has to be precise. Yes. You can't break the rules. Sometimes you can, but only for reasons. Like, one, how many psychics does it change, take to change a light bulb? I give up. No, you already, you already heard the answer. One, one. how many psychics does it take to change a light bulb? I didn't even uh, catch that. That's... So occasionally you can break the structure, but only for a very particular reason. So I actually think they're very highly over underrated and I've um, got a page of those. There's a whole section on ritual, ritual theory, and a number of the rituals I've written. I keep adding to it. It's gotten quite large. It's a very long, very scary list of recommended sources. I've got links to um, photos of, of uh, ancient artifacts, things like that. I'm, I've got some recommended reading lists. Another, another way of saying, well, where, where do I start? There's some recommended reading lists on there. Mm-hmm. I include, I'm pretty sure I have my handy-dandy Wicca starter kit on there, which is a good way to start reading about Wicca. So I would you know, like to give a big plug for that one. Absolutely. Um, and the site again is? It's kaisirsareth.com, C-E-I-S-I-W-R-S-E-R-I-T-H.com. And it's just know, the name I published under. And you can also uh, find a link to that on my website, www.paganheartinmain.com. And thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me.
soft voice from memory speaks of another land. Figures moving just out of sight. In the shadows, you can't quite catch it. Moving through the dappled light stands the honored man. He's watching you. That was Spiral Dance with Pan. And now for some local news. And right now I am sitting in the studio with Lisa Butler, the local coordinator for the Southeast Massachusetts Pagan Pride Day. And welcome. Thank you. Southeastern Mass Pagan Pride Day will be on Sunday, September 14th, 2008 at the Ted Williams Camp in Lakeville, Massachusetts. We are a rain or shine event. We'll be going on from 10 to 6. 
We have a wide variety of entertainment available. We have workshops, vendors, an open ritual. We'll be doing a food drive um, of animal and pet food to support our local community. And uh, we've got all kinds of stuff going on, so it'll be a really good time. Some of the entertainers that we have returning this year are Scott Helen and the Gypsy Nomads, Ultra Plush. We have Jenna Green, who will be performing live for the first time this year. She's also doing a, a sound workshop. But we also have quite a few workshops confirming for the next year, too. We have a shell workshop. We'll have a drumming workshop. Uh, I know that Jenna's doing her sound workshop, and I believe her husband is also doing another uh, sound healing workshop. And our photography, we'll have a couple different workshops on different types of divination. We have a large kids area with face painting and kinds of different kinds of crafts. We finish off our event with an open ritual to celebrate the harvest season. Now coming up right away, you have a fairy ball, second annual Midsummer Fairy Ball coming up to help support the uh, Southeastern Massachusetts Bacon Pride. Yeah, that's right. Our second annual fairy ball actually going to be held on Midsummer this year. It is the Midsummer Fairy Ball. It is a costume contest, so we strongly encourage everybody to come in costume, but they are not mandatory. We would love to have you visit us whether you come in costume or not. It tends to be a lot of fun. We have a DJ. Um, he's our Pig and Pride DJ, Johnny Angel of Johnny Angel Entertainment, who does a great job getting us going. We have karaoke. We have dancing, sing-alongs, all kinds of things going on. We have our costume contest. It's a cash bar. And it is an 18 and over event only, unfortunately, based because the fact that there will be alcohol served in the venue, mm -hmm. we have to keep it at 18 and over. But it's a great time, and you can find um, some of the pictures from last year's Fairy Ball and see some of the frivolity that we got into on our website, which is www.semappd.com, and you can see pictures from last year's Fairy Ball and also last year's event. Now, the tickets for the event are $12 ahead of time or $15 at the door. And where can people go to pick up tickets? You can order tickets online um, at our website, semappd.com. In person, you can purchase tickets in advance at Incantations in Plymouth, the Silver Willow of Rehoboth, Mass., and also at the Sandwich Village Herb Shop on Cape Cod in Sandwich. You can find this information also on my website at www.paganheartinmaine.com. And once again, the website, the funny information is? Our website is um, www.semappd for Southeastern Mass Pagan Pride Day dot com. Uh, we just redeveloped a, a MySpace page, and that is S-E-M-A-S-S-P-P-D. MySpace slash S-E-M-A-S-S-P-P-D. And thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. It's been great.
And that was Jenna Green with Believe. This Saturday night, I will be visiting the radio show Pagan FM in Portsmouth, New Hampshire from midnight to 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you're in that area, you can listen to the show on WSCA 106.1 FM, or you can listen live here on the Internet at www.portsmouthcommunityradio.org. I'll also have a link on my homepage as well at www.paganheartandmain.com. I also want to thank Kaisia Sarath for being on the show today. And I'm going to call this episode 15. As always, all music on A Pagan Heart in Maine is used with permission of the artists. And you can find links to the artist websites at paganheartinmaine.com and also by clicking the musical artist link at the top of that page. Background music for today's show is from Deep Sky Divers. And they can be found at deepskydivers.com. And to close out this episode, here's Shelley Morningsong with Sweet Protector. Until next time, a blessed Litha and great blessings. Looking down from eastern sky Moonlight flows from grandmother's eyes Shining presence of the night Bathe us in your silver light Never-ending ocean tides Living ancient power abides Crashing, swirling, salty seas Moonbeams breathe life into
whose faithful light sustains us. Throughout the ages, the cycles of life have been determined by you. 